7415 WBCQ Monticello, Maine, USA. For the next electric dynamite hour, I'll be spinning the hottest tracks you can find anywhere. North of Poughkeepsie, but south of Rhinebeck and uh, west of Claverack and east of that little donut shop on the corner of... In fact, I can at least promise that these tracks are the hottest tracks you'll find in a four-acre wooded area just off the Taconic Parkway, mostly inhabited by squirrels. <laughs> oh, yeah! Baby! Welcome to This Week in Amateur Radio International. This is your all-amateur radio news and entertainment magazine of the air. This is edition number 311, with the release and air date of Sunday, January 9th, 2011. Quiet, please. In exactly 15 seconds, we'll be on the air. Hey, we're on the air. Hams in Missouri face a series of killer tornadoes, while their counterparts in Australia go on alert as massive rains hit Queensland State. Also, the South African Radio League prepares to ask nation's telecommunications regulators to expand the 160-meter band. And Russia announces plans to take the Internet into space. These stories come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. Leo Laporte will be here with all the latest technology news and commentary. And this week we feature Bill Barron, N2FNH, who will be here with another edition of the Random Access File. That's all straight ahead on today's exciting edition of This Week in Amateur Radio International. Ham Radio's first responders associated with Skywarn were called out as killer storms swept across southwest Missouri just before New Year's. David Black, KB4KCH, is in our Southeast Bureau with the details. For amateur radio operators in Missouri, the end of 2010 was anything but quiet. Killer storms roared across southwestern parts of the state December 30th and 31st. Two of the twisters were rated as EF-3s. Three people were killed in Missouri, with three more deaths reported in Arkansas. Rod Kittleman, K0ADI, is the ARRL's public information officer in southwestern Missouri. He says hams monitored the storms, including supercell thunderstorms, as they moved from Arkansas across the state line, leaving extensive damage. We had uh, storm spotters on our Skywarn groups out, all the way down from Taney uh, County Aries, Christian County Aries, Green County Aries, Texas County. Uh, so pretty much as the storm tracked along from Arkansas through Missouri, we had each of the areas groups from the individual counties who were continuing to, to uh, track the storms, relay the information to the National Weather Service. Uh, we had uh, spotters that were out, you know, of course, chasing the storm, watching the storms. So very, very active bunch of people. For at least 14 hours, radio amateurs stayed active, tracking storms and reporting on their progress to National Weather Service forecasters in Springfield. Kittleman says the storms hit with bad timing, which teaches hams a valuable lesson. You always have to be prepared because you never know what's going to happen. Uh, the bad thing about this storm was that it happened on a uh, holiday period where, you know, a lot of people are not thinking about these kind of storms. They're out doing their holiday activities. Everybody needs, needs to be prepared all times for all seasons. But it also showed us that the ham radio operators are always prepared uh, all season long. Despite the large amount of territory affected, Kittleman says Skywarn and Aries groups coordinated efforts closely. That resulted in an active flow of real-time information on the storms and the damage they were causing. I was actually on the air about 7.30 Friday morning and a track one tornado that went from the Missouri-Arkansas border all the way up to the Fort Leonard Wood area, Rolla area. That was the one that en ended up killing a couple of people up there. The various amateur radio teams are being praised for their efforts to keep the community safe, even when the timing was bad. Weather Service forecasters say they're impressed at the amount of response and support hams in the state gave when it was so badly needed. From the Southeast Bureau in Birmingham, Alabama, I'm David Black, KB4KCH. In all, at least five tornadoes, two of which produced fatalities and numerous severe thunderstorms, pounded the Missouri Ozarks for over 14 hours on December 30th into New Year's Eve. Massive flooding in Australia's Queensland state puts that nation's core of ham radio volunteers on alert. Less Unwin, 
VK4VIL is in the city of Rockhampton with the latest. Following widespread rains over the past several weeks, Queensland's Fitzroy River is currently in full flood, with water inundating towns on its movement downstream. The Fitzroy Basin, covering some 53,000 square kilometres, is Australia's second largest river system. After completely drowning some towns such as Theodore and its more western tributaries, then devastating the larger town of Emerald, 12,000 people, Rockhampton, with a population of 75,000, is now facing what could be its second largest flood in recorded history. The city is already totally isolated, with airport, all feeder highways and the rail links underwater. Sadly, several lives have been lost as a result of flood-related incidents. Rockhampton District Amateur Radio Club President Jack Chomley, VK4JRC, has a good number of club members on standby and are registered with the State Emergency Service and the Disaster Management Committee, with suitable equipment available for activation if the situation worsens, for release of emergency workers, or particularly in the case of power failure. Fortunately, amateur radio operators contacted in upstream areas have also not been called upon for assistance at this time. The river is expected to take several weeks to return to its normal level. From flooded Rockhampton in central VK4, this is Les, VK4VIL. The ham, believed to be the so-called possible honeybee shooter, is dead. Gary Amea, 48, KC9AWD, was shot with his own gun while apparently trying to rob an Orland Park, Illinois tanning salon on Saturday, December 11th. Last October, three men were shot, one fatally, near the Illinois-Indiana border. The shootings appeared entirely random. One victim, a farmer, had a conversation with the shooter about honeybees before he was shot, earning the killer his nickname of the honeybee shooter. Two months later, Gary Amea was allegedly robbing an L.A. tan location at gunpoint when a customer, Jason McDaniel, came through the door. McDaniel disarmed Amea and ultimately shot him twice, killing him. Shortly after Amea was killed, police released surveillance video. The tape shows Amea, clad in black, having bound the attendant behind the counter. McDaniel enters the store and is brought behind the counter. At one point, Amea, having set the gun down, bends over, and McDaniel seizes the opportunity, rushing forward to strike Amea and grab the gun. The two men then move into the hallway just out of the frame, where apparently Amea lunges at McDaniel. A shot goes off in the ensuing struggle. Amea appears dazed, but still a threat. Then McDaniel shoots him in the stomach. According to an unnamed family friend, Amea showed no earlier signs of violence. But something apparently changed in the man from tiny downstate Rankin, Illinois, this past summer, and he lost his job at a Milford trucking company. By October, when the honeybee shooting started, Amea had cut off all ties with even his closest friends. The South African Radio League is preparing documentation to gain access to additional spectrum on the 160-meter band for amateur communications in that nation. South African radio amateurs are invited to make input by sending their views as to why it's necessary to expand the very narrow allocation currently available. Responders are asked to include such items as propagation studies and of what benefit the expanded 160-meter allocation will be. South African hams should send the information to zs6akv at sarl.org.za by end of January. The South African Radio League proposal will be presented at the next SARL and the Independent Communications Authority of South Africa liaison meeting planned for February of 2011. If you are an SWL or a ham with a good medium wave receiver, listen up. On Saturday, February 12th, at precisely 0700 and 0800 UTC, radio station KHMO, 1070 kilohertz in Hannibal, Missouri, will conduct a DX test for SWLs worldwide. The test will be with Morse code, sweep tones, and voice announcements for five minutes at the top of the first hour with its five-kilowatt, three-tower day pattern, and then five minutes at the top of the hour with its one-kilowatt, six-tower nighttime power. Also on February the 12th, 
from 0900 to 0100 UTC, WLIQ 1530 kilohertz in Quincy, Illinois, will conduct a DX test of its own. WLIQ will test for 20 minutes using Morse code sweep tones, voice announcements, special music, sound bites, and the like at its 1400 watts non-directional daytime power. And then WLIQ will test for 20 minutes at 290 watts non-directional critical hours power. And finally, for the last 20 minutes of the hour, they will test at 3 watts non-directional night power. That's right. We said 3 watts, which is almost minuscule power in the AM broadcast band. The third and the last test is on Saturday, February 19th. This one will be from 0700 to 0800 UTC from WLRB 1510 kHz from Macomb, Illinois. The WLRB test for the first 30 minutes will use Morse code, sweep tones, voice announcements, special music, sound bites at the 1 kilowatt non-directional day power. For the second half of the test, the content will be the same, but the power will be reduced to 250 watts non-directional for its critical hours power. If you'd like to receive a QSL, you can send a written report or a cassette or CD to the chief engineer of these stations by following the rules. Tapes or CDs will be accepted along with written reports, but must be queued up to the point of where the best reception is. If sending the report by mail, you must include a return, self-addressed, stamped envelope if you expect to get a QSL or any reply back. These reports are being sent to the engineer's home address, not the station, so please be patient. Mr. Glazener is the chief engineer for 16 radio stations in Missouri and Illinois. EQSLs are available. Send to the engineer at Glazner, that's spelled G-L-A-E-N-Z-E-R, at Frontier.com, with both the station call letters and the words DX test in the subject line. This is a subject amateur radio operators need to talk about more than we do today. All it takes is one trip to a local ham fest, and you notice that many ham radio folks are overweight. Our weight problem varies depending upon where in the United States you live. This series is not intended to be medical advice, and anyone thinking of making a change in their diet or level of activity should always see their family practice doctor first. As I traveled around the country, I noticed the obesity problem is different depending upon where you live. Today, I live in Phoenix, where it's not as bad as as it was when I lived in northern Indiana. There are no magic pills or fast answers to the obesity problem, but there are some ways to improve it without making huge changes or spending lots of money. This series will address the safe and easy ways to lose weight and improve your health. For these ideas to work, it will take the buy-in from everyone that eats at your dinner table. As long as the household is willing to go along, this can succeed. In my case, just two months after graduating from college, I had a heart attack. I was obese and had spent the previous three years living off fast food and sitting on my sofa reading class notes and textbooks. Today, I'm healthier than I have been in the past decade, and that's what this series is about. I did it, so can you. Again, this series is not intended to be medical advice, and anyone thinking of changing their diet or level of activity should always see their family practice doctor first. Next time, we'll review a simple plan for starting to improve your health, This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting from Phoenix, Arizona, for This Week in Amateur Radio. And now, with his segment on working amateur radio satellites, here is AMSAT North America's own Bruce Page, KK5DO. From the AMSAT News Service comes news about AO51. The AO51 control team reported they enabled the power management function of the satellite in anticipation of eclipses expected to begin before the end of December 2010. Command team member Mark, N8MH, wrote, You might see the transmitter power levels go up and down a bit as the battery voltage changes. We'll make some adjustments and tweaks to keep it from going up and down too often, but that it's the way it's going to work. In a few weeks, we expect transmitters to be off while in eclipse and on when in the sun. Users should expect adjustments through the end of February when the satellite will once again see full sunlight. You will find TXA off most of the time. It will be turned on to collect telemetry. Remember our golden rule, use only as much power as necessary to make your contact, and the satellite will last much longer. This is Mahana Page, W5BTS, for Bruce, KK5DO. From the United States of America, you're listening to Amateur Radio's premier news magazine of the air, This Week in Amateur Radio International. So... 
where are we again? Well, Beverly, we are standing in the land of nothing. A place where radio signals cannot be heard, just like the Twilight Zone. Here, check this out. Fine. Look, a UFO! It's the Marfa Lights! Bummer, always with the weirdness. Why can't we go to Disney World like everyone else? W2XOY in the land of nothing. That's the subject of the next random access thought coming up in just a few minutes right here on this week in Amica Radio. What's that? A cicada. That's an owl. Wait, what's that? Oh, the camp town ladies sing this song, doo-da, I think doo-da. that's a donkey. The swamp town mud hole stinks so strong, oh, da doo-da, oh. Shrek! You were expecting Prince Charming? Get out and explore nature. You never know what you might find. To learn more about all the fun stuff waiting for you outdoors, go to discovertheforest.org. This message brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. This is Joe Perry and Steven Tyler of Aerosmith for Red. You know, it's okay to rock and roll and party down. Just don't get in that 2,000-pound bullet when you're done and cocked. And please don't drink and drive. Someone that jaded you. A reminder that friends don't let friends drive drunk. A public service message brought to you by the Ad Council, U.S. Department of Transportation, National Association of Broadcasters, and RAD. We now pause 10 seconds for station identification. We're on shortwave. This week in Amateur Radio, right between your ears. All hip music.
Okay, can you hear me? I'm traffic. Yes, I can. N2F and H, W2XOY. Your signal's about uh, 80, 85%. We are radio hobbyists, radio enthusiasts, even radio geeks. Whether it's amateur radio, CB, shortwave, scanning, GMRS, FRS, or all of the above, radio is part of our daily lives. Mobile radios are in our cars, HTs are on our belts, and some room in our apartment or house is crammed floor to ceiling with radios. In fact, for some of us, Radio is a 24-7-365 avocation. We are constantly searching, scanning, or scouring the RF spectrum for signals. We become agitated when our receivers are silent. In fact, silence is the last thing we want from our radios. Or is it? Could it be that someone in our midst has been on a 20-year search for... nothing? The answer is yes. I am that person, and I achieved that goal in August of 2005. It all began in the early 1980s. My job requires a lot of travel. I was on the road somewhere in north-central Pennsylvania, which, except for northern Maine, is the most sparsely populated area in the northeast. My car at the time was equipped with a 2-meter rig, a 40-channel CB, and the usual AM-FM radio. As I drove, I had all the radios in the scan mode when I realized that I was receiving nothing. From 540 to 1610 kHz, 26.965 to 27.405 MHz, 88 to 108 MHz, and 144 to 148MHz, I heard nothing. No signals, no RF, just silence. This phenomenon continued for 30 miles until the car radio locked in on a local FM station. I began to wonder, with literally millions of radio and television transmitters simultaneously on the air worldwide, was there any place on the planet that was still devoid of RF signals? Could I ever find such a place? It would be difficult, if not impossible. Nevertheless, I promised myself that someday I would find it. My quest became more difficult in the late 1980s when I installed several more radios in my car. I had now continuous receive from 540 kHz all the way up through 928 MHz, including cellular. My job required travel throughout the eastern United States. Even in the most desolate areas of West Virginia, Kentucky, and Tennessee, I heard stations pouring in on shortwave. In fact, as I traveled into uncharted, unpopulated territory, I became rare DX on the 14.336 MHz County Hunters Net. Stations by the dozens eagerly called me. On 40 meters, the eCars Net on 7.255 MHz was full scale. I was a regular check-in with only 50 watts and a hamstick antenna. 10 meters was wide open and I worked the world on sideband as well as 10 meter FM repeaters hundreds of miles away. When 6 meters opened via e-skip, I worked stations in almost 20 states. From the middle of nowhere, I was connected. I was not in the land of nothing. In February of 2002, I was sent to Phoenix, Arizona on a four-week assignment. I flew out there with dual-band extended-receive HTs, a CB walkie-talkie, and a Yaesu FT817, which covered the full shortwave spectrum as well as 6 meters, 2 meters, and 70 centimeters. I rented a car and spent the weekend exploring the mountains and deserts of Arizona and New Mexico. I found many areas without CB, AM, FM, VHF, and cellular signals. 
But once again, shortwave pulled through. Even though the sunspots were declining, I always found the shortwave bands alive. With only 5 watts out of the FT817 and telescopic 20, 17, 15, 10 and 6 meter antennas, I worked numerous stations thousands of miles away. I earned my 1010 number from a location devoid of all life forms in the Arizona desert just 500 feet from the Mexican border. I was thrilled with the performance of the FT817, but once again, even though I was in an unpopulated, inhospitable area, I was not in the land of nothing. Then, in August of 2005, I had an extended business trip planned. I would spend a week in San Diego, followed by a week in New Orleans, then a week in Atlanta, a week in Washington, D.C., and finally a week in New York City. Since I'm a rail fan, I decided to do the whole trip via Amtrak. I booked a roomette, a small private room about four foot by six foot. It contained two seats that folded into a bed. The official reason for the roomette was medical. I use a CPAP machine to breathe at night. The real reason was personal. I packed a Grundig YB400 shortwave radio, the Yesu FT817, a Yesu VX5, a Yesu FT60, an ICOM ICT2H, a Radio Shack scanner, a Grundig Yachtboy 300 shortwave radio, and a Midland CB walkie-talkie. I also brought telescopic gain antennas, battery chargers, and a generous supply of nickel metal hydride and alkaline batteries. I would have a private coast-to-coast -coast ham shack paid for by my employer. I had a blast on my way to California. Although I couldn't work HF from inside the rail car, I had dozens of QSOs on 2 meters and 70 centimeters. On many occasions, the tracks were parallel to an interstate. I would work the truckers on CB Channel 19. In one contact, the trucker kept pace with the train for 10 miles as we talked. On the prairies of Illinois and Kansas, I had simplex QSOs that covered 20 miles or more. I used the ICOM ICT2H, which I consider the most sensitive 2-meter handheld ever made, to listen to marine traffic on the Great Lakes and on the Mississippi River, as well as to scan the railroad frequencies. I checked out the local AM and FM stations, listened to VHF TV audio, tuned in shortwave broadcasts, listened to the airports, and scanned the public service bands. And I got paid for it. But. In the back of my mind, I knew that this trip would also bring me to the land of nothing. I left California one week later on Amtrak's Sunset Limited. This train follows the Union Pacific's main line through Southern California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. From El Paso to Del Rio, the train passed through the most desolate areas of Texas. It also went through Marfa, Texas, home of the famous and mysterious Marfa Lights. These are lights that appear on the horizon at night in the foothills of the mountains. They float, hover, and dart back and forth. They have been documented for more than 120 years and, to this day, no one knows what causes them. In my heart, I knew that Marfa, Texas was the location of the land of nothing. Unfortunately, the train was scheduled to pass through Marfa before sunset unless it was delayed. And it was. The Union Pacific Line is a single track with passing sidings every 30 miles or so. As eastbound and westbound trains approached, one would pull into the siding to let the other pass. Now, under the agreements that Amtrak has with freight lines, passenger trains have priority over freight trains. In reality, it doesn't work that way, especially on that particular line. It takes a long time to stop a 100-car freight train and a lot of energy to get it moving again. Furthermore, the line from east to west climbs a continuous grade. 
As a result, the Union Pacific dispatcher always put the Sunset Limited into the siding and let the freight trains pass. Sometimes we would be in the siding for hours while a parade of westbound freights went by. We left El Paso, Texas at 11 p.m., several hours behind schedule. I was dozing in my roomette, the ICOM IC-T2H scanning the rail channels. Somewhere around 2 a.m., we went into a siding to let a westbound freight pass. Then, the dispatcher called us and said he was keeping us in the hole for another westbound about one hour away. That's correct, though. It's two, two, one, Suddenly, I was wide awake. This might be the moment. I knew from monitoring the rail frequencies that we were near Marfa and about 30 miles from Alpine, Texas. I quickly brought out all the radios and assigned each one of them a particular frequency. The Grundig Yacht Boy 400 got the shortwave spectrum, while its little brother, the Yacht Boy 300, was given the AM and FM broadcast bands. The Radio Shack scanner was assigned 30 to 54 megahertz as primary, with 108 to 138 and 440 to 512 megahertz as secondary. The ICOM ICT2H was assigned the VHF high band, including two meters and the rail frequencies. The Yesu FT60 was assigned 440 through 470 megahertz as primary, with aircraft band as secondary. The Midland CB got the 26.965 to 27.405 range. The Yesu VX5 was given the VHF and UHF TV audio, the military aircraft band, and the 800 megahertz segment. Finally, the Yesu FT817 was assigned all its memory channels in the HF, 6-meter, and 2-meter bands. For the first 10 minutes or so, I was busy. The Midland and the VX5 had to manually be tuned through their assigned ranges. I was constantly switching radios from their primary to secondary assignments. On some of the more esoteric frequencies such as TV audio, military aircraft, and 800 MHz, I made only one sweep. The AM-FM broadcast bands, CB, and the VHF low bands received three full searches. Shortwave, aircraft, VHF high, and the UHF bands received almost continuous coverage. For the cellular frequencies, I pulled out my cell phone. As I expected, I got a no-service message. After the first 10 minutes, I settled in on the core frequencies of shortwave, aircraft, VHF high, and UHF. The Midland was parked on CB channel 19, and the FT-817 continued to march through its memory channels. I put the radios on the folding table by the window. I then shut off all the lights in my roomette and even unplugged the nightlight. It was now pitch black, inside and outside. The train was absolutely silent. I was in the last car, so I couldn't hear the engine. I leaned back in the chair and allowed the darkness and silence to embrace me. I began to feel disconnected from the world and even from my own senses. I began to think that I was the last person on earth and that the blackness and silence would last forever. At one point a wave of fear passed over me and I had to resist the urge to pick up the radios and start calling someone. Anyone. The fear passed and once again I was at peace with my surroundings. I lost track of space and time. The darkness was my blanket and the silence was a reassuring friend. I convinced myself that this would never end. Unfortunately, it did. After 30 minutes of total sensory deprivation, the ICOM IC-T2H jarred me back to the real world when it picked up the defect detector triggered by the westbound freight. No defects. Repeat, no defects. Total axles, two, one, six, out. A minute later, the dispatcher came on and contacted us. 221, release one block, men's block at 1759, THW. Then, a low rumble that grew louder as the freight train passed us. Finally, the dispatcher gave us permission to move. You have authority to pass in on plane stop indication at FO85 from the main line to the side, watching out for the local ahead. I sat up, turned on the lights, and shut off all the radios except for the ICOM. I was back in the real world. Note, purists will claim that my test was flawed, 
they will point out that I was in a steel rail car and only using telescopic antennas. If I were outside with larger antennas, I would hear signals on medium wave and short wave. In addition, they will also say I didn't check any frequency higher than 900 megahertz and that I would have received satellite transmissions if I had the proper receivers. I do not dispute the fact that the test was not perfect. I will point out, however, that under the same conditions, I received hundreds of signals on other parts of my journey. This trip on Amtrak was almost 8,000 miles, and Marfa, Texas was the only location that I heard nothing, nothing. My only regret was that I did not see the Marfa lights. That would have made the surreal moment complete. The rest of the trip, radio-wise, was anticlimactic. Once again, I was active on 2 meters, 440, and CB, as well as scanning shortwave and the public service bands. I even had a handful of 10 meter and 6 meter QSOs. I had achieved the land of nothing. I had no desire to return. When I finally arrived home weeks later, many hams asked me what I had heard and worked on my coast-to-coast -coast radio quest. I smiled and softly said, nothing, absolutely nothing. They didn't understand and perhaps never will. One final note, this was my first time in New Orleans. I loved the city and toured it extensively. I sat by the Mississippi River and listened to the marine traffic. I had numerous CUSOs with the local hams. And I left New Orleans on Friday, August 12, 2005, just two weeks before Hurricane Katrina. I would return to New Orleans three months later, but that is another story. This is Bill Continelli, W2XOY, for this week in Amateur Radio. Disconnecting from... The Random Access Thought. Tickets, please. Tickets? N to F and H. You know what, Zach? What, Marilyn? I think that Twitter is fabulous. Yeah, you could say that. Twitter is the next big thing. Big? Yeah, real big. Twitter is a fantastic idea to bring friends closer together. Marilyn, I don't think our friends want to get closer with Twitter. Well, what do you mean? Twitter! Oh, Twitter! Here, girl! <laughs> This is not the Twitter I was talking about. She followed me home from school. Just like your big dog. You clean the bird cage then? I will, Marilyn. I will. Here's a special news bulletin. Godzilla is now in New York City. Check out our new Twitter sites. Go to www.twitter.com forward slash T-W-I-A-R and get up to date on the latest amateur radio news headlines. My dad is at forward slash N2FNH. Greg Williams is at forward slash K4HSM. And our executive producer, George, at forward slash W2XBS. But check out the main site at Twitter to go backstage at This Week in Amateur Radio right now. with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. Well, hey, 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 how are you today? Leo Laporte here, the tech guy, and it's time to talk about, what do you think? Tech, yeah, computers, the internet, cell phones, camcorders, MP3 players, home theater, all that great stuff. Technology is anything that, you know, anything new that comes along that wasn't around when, when you were born. Or perhaps when you became aware. So, you know, for some cultures, technology would be a zipper, a pencil. For old folks like me, the ATMs and 
fax machines, that would be technology, high-tech, new-tech. For many of us, computers, the Internet, I suppose for the younger generation, that's not even really, you know, high-tech to them. It's just the the way it is. My son is a good example. You know, he's 13 years old, grown up with computers his whole life. Does, you know, he thinks I'm a geek. <laughs> he calls me a geek because, you know, I'm a geek. But he doesn't think of himself as a geek except that I see him uploading pictures to his MySpace account chatting with people, using computers almost all the time, for hours a day, watching videos on YouTube. He doesn't watch much TV. He doesn't watch any TV. He, everything's on the Internet. So for him, it's not. I don't think it's high-tech. But this show is, is really for those of us who are still awed, baffled, and amazed by all this stuff. This stuff is changing so fast. The slide rule was high-tech at one point. Well, yeah, at one point. <laughs> I think it was invented about 800 years ago, but at that point, that was high. T- Boy, that was amazing. That was amazing. I do remember when calculators, do you remember that? If you're of a certain age, you remember when calculators became common. What a, wow, that was amazing. And they were very expensive, hundreds and hundreds of dollars, those early HPs. People still have huge reverence for the 35 and these these HP calculators because they really changed everything. People were using slide rules up until the 70s. All of a sudden, calculators come in. And, and, and really, calculators were the beginning of the tech revolution in terms of digital technology. When a Japanese company called BizComp came to a little startup in Silicon Valley known as Intel, little start, brand new company with some very bright young engineers and said, we need a calculator chip. Can you make one for us? And Intel said, yeah, we can. And the engineers sat back and said, you know, we could design this chip for BizComp to do addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, and just leave it at that. Or we could design a multi-purpose chip, a programmable chip, a chip you could give instructions to. And sure, you could give it instructions to add and subtract and divide and multiply, but you could also have it do other things. And then we could sell this chip to other people. We could make it a, it'd be a more useful design. And they came up with something they called the 4004, and it really is the first microprocessor. So it was for a calculator. It was the, the predecessor to the 8008 and then the 8080, which you may remember is the, is the chip that really began the revolution with the IBM PC. I get, I'm sorry, I should give credit to Apple and its Motorola chips, the 60502. It wasn't Motorola at the time. I don't even remember the name of the company that made that chip. So calculators really began the whole thing and now we've come full circle. Somebody just, a friend of mine just showed me a calculator on his iPhone, an HP 35C on his, cal- on his iPhone. Somebody, they, if you go to, uh, the Google source code pages, somebody has made an exact duplicate of a variety of HP calculators. Free download works on your iPhone. You have to hack the iPhone to make it work, but it, it's, it's got all the buttons, all the functions. It's probably more accurate. It's probably faster. And it works on your iPhone. I'm sorry, though. I missed a very uh, interesting speech that I would have liked to have seen from a guy named Clay Shirky. Uh, who is a web maven. He has a book, a new book out. Uh, his newest book is called Here Comes Everybody. <laughs> I love that name. The Power of Organizing Without Organizations. And it's all about, uh, you know, the new Internet, the new way of thinking. Actually, I guess he's not a Brit. He's an American. Uh, uh, but he but he uh, does stuff for the BBC. So that's why I got confu- confused. Professor of New Media in the Media Studies Department at Hunter College gave a speech uh, talking about this something I talk about a lot, which is the the kind of the the new information era that we're in. He starts the speech; it's very interesting. He starts the speech by quoting an old history book that he read once. I don't know if this is true. That claims that the Industrial Revolution was such a psychological upset for people. It was such a difficult thing to adjust to. Their lives had changed so much. They had to do something, take their minds off of it, and gin became very popular. You would see push carts selling gin in the streets everywhere. People were drunk. They just, for for the first 20 years, they just got drunk in response to the Industrial Revolution. I don't know if I buy that. But he says, in some ways, what's going on right now is very similar. We're not all getting drunk. Well, we're getting a little drunk. We're getting drunk on TV. He said the sitcom is the gin of the information age. He says, and I guess I guess you would really talk about this new information age beginning when main when when mass media really took off. First radio, then television, and all of a sudden we're all, you know, we're all uh, 
were connected in ways that we were never connected before. And he said it was so disruptive and upsetting to people that they just buried themselves in sitcoms. I Love Lucy, Gilligan's Island, Malcolm in the Middle, Desperate Housewives. You just, he says they functioned as a kind of metal heat sink, dissipating the thinking that might have otherwise have built up and caused society to overheat. <laughs> and he says it's only now as we're waking up from that collective bender that we're starting to see the cognitive surplus. He calls it the cognitive surplus as an asset rather than as a crisis. He says, you know, the industrial era gave you a surplus of leisure, those of those of us who were employed. But ultimately, society, because uh, society, production became more efficient, people had more free time. At first, they used it to drink, but eventually, public libraries, museums, education for children, uh, you know, uh, theater, a lot of things blossomed as a result because there was more leisure time, there was more creativity. He says, same thing's happening now. We have, but not more leisure time, we have more time to think. And at first, it's very, you know, disorienting. So what do we do? We turn off our minds with sitcoms eight hours a night. But he says, now we're starting to come out of it. He he he, he created a, a unit of uh, of information that I like. He calls it the uh, the Wikipedia. He he says roughly. He, he he you know a rough estimate is that to create the Wikipedia project, every page, all the code, all the languages is roughly a hundred million hours of human thinking. So he'll call that the uh, the hundred media hundred million hours. It's a Wikipedia. He said in the U.S. we spend. Like a hundred million hours every weekend just watching the ads on TV. So that's about 2,000 Wikipedias a year spent watching TV. So he says, as people move away, and this is true, we're seeing it happen, the ratings are going down. People stop putting themselves to sleep while watching sitcoms and start taking, and even a fraction of that time, even a fraction of the total number of people who do it, a small amount of that time, all of a sudden you see a lot of amazing things happening. A lot of creativity. He talks about talking to a television producer and and telling her about Wikipedia, and she says the the natural reaction a lot of people have, where, you know, when they hear about people spending every day creating a level seventy character in World of Warcraft or or creating Wikipedia or or blogging and every day, where do they find the time? She said, where do they find the time? And he says, I could, I could tell that, that she was thinking, you know, what a bunch of losers. But he said, at least they're doing something. Instead of watching Gilligan's Island, they're actually creating something. And his opinion, his opinion, and I, I completely agree with him, is the generation coming up now expects media to have a two-way street, expects to be able to create as well as consume. You know, my generation, we grew up consuming media but not really participating in it. We, we, you know, we sat down, we watched, we went to sleep. My kids' generation are growing up with the notion that not only do they not have to sit and, and watch TV, they can make TV, they can make radio, they can make art, they can write, they can blog, they can create Wikipedias. And it's, and it's their right, it's their expectation. So he says, what are you going to do with your cognitive surplus? The excess brain power you've got now that you're going to stop watching so much, so many sitcoms. What are you going to do? He's telling now this, this is the Web 2.0 group, uh, the, all the programmers and the people are trying to create new websites. And, and really, what he's doing is looking out at them and saying, "This is you, you. This is what you're doing. You, all this, all this amazing creativity. And we don't, aren't we seeing this uh, blossom of creativity on the internet? And, and thanks to digital technologies, thanks to the ease with which we can create things." that the information era has brought us. I think it's a very interesting point of view. Are you watching less TV? Are you creating more? Maybe that's the better question. Not are you watching less TV, but are you creating more? Are you doing a blog? Are you commenting? Even commenting on blogs is a creative act. Are you shooting your own video, taking your own pictures, using Photoshop, Photoshop elements? Are you writing more? Really, uh, a lot of what this show is about is empowering you, is helping you, giving you the tools you need to do all that. Because I really believe in that. I think we all uh, should create more. A few, uh, uh, let's have fewer cows eating the grass out there, and, and more people creating some some stuff to, for everybody to share. I like that. 
I like that. I like that idea. You know, a lot of people want to do websites these days. And, and you know, in the old days when you started uh, out, uh, if you started a website in 1992 or 93 or 94, as I did, you'd do it by hand. You'd use Notepad or some form of text editor, and you'd write this all in something called HTML. High Hypertext Markup Language is what it stood for, HTML. And, uh, you know, it was just a, it was a way of, of taking text and saying, this is bold. You do bold by, you know, angle bracket B, angle bracket. Here's some bold text. Angle bracket slash B, angle bracket. That would be, so it was a way of putting, I don't know if you ever used WordPress. Remember those, those WordPress markups that you'd do, the dot codes and so forth to say bold or underlined? That's what HTML basically was. And you would all, you do it all by hand and you'd basically write that page out longhand. <laughs> And then uh, you'd upload it to a server. And then somebody would go to your server and they'd download the page and there and voila, I have a website. Well, the problem with that is if you want to change that page, you got to go back into the code and HTML code and hand write it all out. And there's layouts, markup language mixed in with the actual text. And it's very confusing looking if you've ever, you know, if you ever want to see what it looks like. Open your browser and view the source code. You can do that on all browsers, the source code of a page, any page, and you'll see what that looks like. It's a mess. Eventually, we got a little smart. We said, well, we really should separate all this markup, this stuff, this, this layout stuff. We should separate this out from the content so that somebody who's creating the content doesn't have to know HTML. They can just write and then... Wouldn't it be good if a computer was the thing that made <laughs> did, 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 did all the HTML? Why is a human writing this? Computers are good at this kind of laborious, painstaking process. So that's what they did. And that's called a content management system. The first people to do it were bloggers. I think Live Journal, uh, Evan Williams Blogger. That's what they did. They said, look, you're a blogger. You don't need to know HTML. Just write your post, just like in a word processor. And you could say, this is bold, just like in a word processor, by selecting it and pressing the bold button. You could put a picture in just by kind of pasting it in, that kind of thing. And we'll let the, then you, you pick a template, a design, a way of looking, and then we'll merge the two together on our side, on our end. Well, that was a revolution. And, uh, and, and it's so, you know, when I say use WordPress, I'm not saying write a blog. Blogs were the first to do it. WordPress is, is software people often use to blog, which is like a daily journal. But anytime you're going to change the content, even if it's not daily, if it's monthly, it's so much easier to change the content and not change the design each time or mess with the design each time. And that's what WordPress does. Is it takes You pick a nice-looking template or you design one of your own. You, 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 you got that template. You don't mess with it. You leave it. That's your layout. Now you just write posts, and it takes care of the layout. And if you have anything fancy to do or different to do, you can, you can, you're not, you're not stuck with it. Especially if you start, you learn these layout languages. Now instead of HTML, it's CSS actually. That's one thing that's changed. Anyway, all of that, all of that is much improved thanks to content management systems. So if you come to me and you say, hey, I think I'd like to do a, 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 a blog or a website, I, I, I'm not going to say, oh yeah, uh, do it by hand, not anymore. You want to you want to use these tools because it makes it so much easier. Even if you're a tech guy, even if you're a guru, you don't want to do it by hand. So that's the solution, and it, and it works quite well nowadays. Dear, what is that remarkable device? Well, my love, this is my latest invention: the automatic internet blog posting machine. And industrial strength electromagnetic vacuum cleaner. A most unusual concept. Now, please observe. I have just placed some simple keywords into the machine, and now the blog you later will automatically compose a perfect article for my personal blog. <laughs> A bit more refinement. Yes. Well, the vacuum cleaner still works. Nice bowling ball. Yours? No, your father's. From across the street. Moderately interesting. Quite. Bummer.
Attention this week in Amateur Radio listeners. Have I got news for you. Now at www.twiar.org. Our new staff blogs. See what's going on behind the scenes and get all the latest inside poop from the gang here at This Week. All you have to do is get to www.twiar.org and click on Staff Blogs. That's www.twiar.org and click on Staff Blogs. Get the inside skinny on This Week in Amateur Radio right away. And finally this week, Russian engineers have started drawing up plans to take the Internet into space. And they say that their new cosmonaut project and its implementation will provide an opportunity for Runet users to enter the Internet in a whole new way. Amateur Radio Newsline's Bruce Tennant, K6PZW, has more. The developers of the system say that rapid access to the Internet is only part of the task set before the Cosmonet. They give priority to guaranteeing communications between spacecraft and establishing control over Russian-orbited flying objects from any point on the Earth and stable communications with remote regions of Russia. Vitaly Davidov is the deputy head of the Russian Space Agency. He says that such a communication system is crucial for the North and in the polar regions of Russia because satellites in the geostationary orbit cannot provide access to these regions. He notes that for his nation to build fixed transmitters there or lay fiber optic cables to these regions is either economically inexpedient or technically impossible. The new project is an upgraded version of the present system known as GoNets, which translates into the word messenger in English. Davidoff says that it's crucial for Russia to have the possibility of ensuring communication with any of its satellites at any time and linking them with the mission control centers. In short, says Davidoff, Russia is lifting the Internet into orbit. The developers emphasize that the Cosmonet does not depend on a ground infrastructure. Rather, communications will be maintained with the assistance of terminals and basic stations through satellites. Consequently, emergency situations such as earthquakes or other calamities cannot interrupt the proposed system's communications. And I'm Bruce Tennant, K6PZW in Los Angeles. Davidoff says that at present there's no such a system and his nation hopes to enter into this market first. That wraps up another edition of This Week in Amateur Radio International. Be sure and be with us next week here on WBCQ on 7.415 MHz at the same time for another edition of This Week in Amateur Radio International. This Week in Amateur Radio International is produced by an all-volunteer amateur radio staff and originates from Albany, New York. If you would like to get in touch with us or if you have previous broadcast experience and would like to join our air staff as a news anchor or special segment producer, please get in touch with us via email. Our address is w2xbs at twiar.org. If you would like to write us, our address is This Week in Amateur Radio International, P.O. Box 30, Sand Lake, New York, 12153. If you would like to advertise on future editions of This Week in Amateur Radio International, please call us at area code 518-283-3665. That's area code 518-283-3665. If you miss some of today's program, it, along with our North American Amateur Band Bulletin service, is available via podcast or regular download. Visit us on the web at www.twiar.org for more information. This Week in Amateur Radio International is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, share-alike license. Now for the staff and crew of This Week in Amateur Radio International, I'm Blaine Moore and N1GTU saying 73 until next week. That was wonderful. Bravo. I loved it. Oh, it was great. Well, it was pretty good. Well, it wasn't bad. Well, there were parts of it that weren't very good. It could have been a lot better. I didn't really like it. It was pretty terrible. It was bad. It was awful. I'm terrible. Get him away. Hey, boo. Now we return you to the test card and submit. <gasps> Computers can do that? You're still here? It's over. Go home. This Week in Amateur Radio International is a production of Community Video Associates, Incorporated. This is the world-famous WBCQ, Monticello, Maine, USA. This is the planet, here for you, WBCQ.